I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Where have you heard or seen those famous words? Most recently for me, I think I heard them at work as part of a radio PSA for a Salvation Army donation drive. I've also seen them plastered on soup kitchen walls, permanently displayed on church lawn signs, and circled with emojis and Instagram bios, and spray-painted onto the walls of random inner-city alleyways. I think it would be fair to say that Matthew 25, 35-36, along with verse 40, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me are some of the most well-known words of Jesus, whether in Christendom or otherwise. To the world, they're of course a symbol of philanthropy, the soundtrack of telethons for the poorest of the poor. To Christians, I think many of us hear, I was thirsty, and then the rest of this quote just pops into our head like a, like a smart search on Google, and we, we tend to view the rest of this passage through the lens of, this is where Jesus teaches us we have to help the poor. And brothers and sisters, that's a bit unfortunate. I mean, it could be worse. That message, of course, isn't anti-biblical. The Bible has plenty to say about having a general concern for the poor and disadvantaged in the world. Mother and neighbor as yourself. Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. But folks, if, if that's our take-home from this passage, this passage in particular, we have missed the point. We've missed a gold mine. Of gospel application. As we began to see last week, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are one cohesive unit. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. In these final verses of chapter 25, Jesus is building to the conclusion of this major section of teaching just a few days before he goes to the cross. We have to study this final passage in light of that context. So we're going to begin with a quick review this morning. We did some of this last week. It'll be quicker this time. I've included the same big picture outline as an insert in your bulletins today if you want to follow along with this. But again, that all-important starting point has to stay in our minds. The question the disciples ask Jesus in 24-3 after he predicts the Jerusalem temple's destruction. They say, tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is still answering that question when we get to the sheep and the goats. As we saw last week, Jesus began by correcting what appears to be a key assumption of the disciples, that the temple's doom would mean the end of the world, the end of the age as we know it. No, Jesus says, the temple's destruction, which occurred about 40 years after this conversation with his disciples, will be just one of many terrible events that will characterize a long era between his ascension and his return. He describes different aspects of that in verses 4 to 28 of Matthew 24, before giving us a glimpse of the end in verses 29 to 31. Of course, the key question left unanswered at that point is, when exactly will history move into verse 29? Jesus addresses that in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No, Peter, I can't give you a hard date. But, Jesus says, I can tell you how you should live, given these twin truths. Number one, my return will be unexpected and sudden. And number two, it will be preceded by a long delay. And that is what Jesus is teaching 
in Matthew 24, 42, right through to the end of chapter 25. He tells his disciples, and in turn us today, how to live in these tumultuous last days before their delayed yet sudden end. We looked at the first three of these lessons last week, with the focus on the third. All of them were given in the form of parables. Today we're going to be zooming in on the fifth lesson, which also serves as the denouement to this whole chunk of scripture. Let's review what we learned so far. This is helpful. The first two parables, they dealt with how to wait given the sudden nature of Jesus' return. The return of Jesus is like a break and enter. That's the first one, the parable of the thief in the night. Therefore, we must be ready to give an account for our life of service at any moment. The second one, the parable of the wise and wicked servants. And then we saw in the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus' followers must be prepared for a very long delay before his return. Waiting for Jesus requires perseverance. And the fourth lesson, which we're touching on briefly here today, is another parable and builds on this point. The parable of the talents, which John preached for us back in March. It teaches us that we are to use this long delay to improve the assets our master has sovereignly entrusted to us. Our waiting is not passive. We are slaves commissioned to improve heavenly assets. Copping out and burying them in a hole is not an option. We are to work while we wait, stewarding all the Lord has entrusted to us. That is prepared living. That is worshipful living amidst a long delay. So what we have then is essentially two pairs of parables. You can see this in your bulletin. Given the suddenness of Christ's return, we must be ready to give an account of our service at any moment. And given the long delay before his return, work to improve his assets. And then we hit our text today. The conclusion of the matter, as Ecclesiastes might put it. Here we have the final point of application that Jesus provides to his disciples in light of the nature of the last days and the coming end of the age. This time the theme is not suddenness or long delay, but judgment, what comes at the end. And unlike the previous four lessons, it's not provided in the form of a strict parable. The genre distinctions here of parable and prophecy blur in this section. By verse 34, Jesus seems to return to a prophetic voice, what we last saw in the middle of chapter 24. So we have to be a little bit careful how we handle this text. It's a bit slippery. However, it does have three defined sections. First, there's this parable-like parabolic introduction, verses 31 to 33. And then the central message that Jesus wants to convey, verses 34 to 45. It's a prophecy. It's driven home by fourfold repetition. And finally, a one-sentence conclusion in verse 46. So let's look first at the intro. Jesus begins by picking up where he left off, way back in chapter 24, verse 31. You can look at this. Let's start in chapter 24, verse 30. All the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And now chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. It's the same scene. Jesus is describing his final return in terms of a prophetic figure first prophesied from Daniel 7. We're going to have more on that shortly. Let's look at verse 32 first. All the nations will be gathered before him. 
This calls to mind, of course, Jesus' words in 24-14. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The end has come. The nations are gathered before him. People from every tribe, tongue, they're now gathered to be judged based on their response to the good news. And he will separate the people, the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So here's what appears to be the beginning of a parable. This would be a ready image, of course, in the minds of Jesus' disciples. First century shepherds, they often graze sheep and goats together during the day in this part of the world. But at night they would separate them, as goats required more warmth. And so they were often herded into a space where they could lie close together. So in a similar way, I have to stop here for a second, to what I said last week about the oil and the ten virgins, Probably far too much has been said about the nature of actual sheep and actual goats and their theological relevance to this passage. The main focus here is actually on the work of the shepherd. With the ease of an experienced shepherd, Jesus will separate his elect from the rest of mankind. It's a task as routine as the herding of sheep from goats at the end of the day. Anyone who dares to question the separating work of Jesus in the last day would be seen as ridiculous. As ridiculous as a goat arguing with the shepherd that they should be herded with the sheep. Verse 33, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I think we're fairly familiar with the meaning here. As much as it pains me to admit I am a lefty, the sheep are in the good spot. In the shame culture of Jesus' day, a seat to the right was a place of honor, to the left, disgrace. The right is the side of blessing, it is the side of power. Case in points, Hebrews 10. We know Jesus himself is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, mediating his sovereignty. So that's the setup. That's essentially the purpose of that parabolic introduction. The table is set for Jesus' final lesson on faithful waiting. Jesus likens his first movements on the day of judgment, the day of his second coming, the end of the age, to that of the work of a first century shepherd. It's essentially all there is to it. But then it starts to sound a bit more like prophecy in verse 34. We get a change in the picture here. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The parabolic language ends here. The picture it painted, though, comes into focus. This is no longer a shepherd, but a king. The king. King Jesus speaking to his blood-bought people, those he gathered at his right hand. As mentioned earlier, this is a direct fulfillment of Daniel 7. It's right at the forefront of this passage. Let's look at this briefly. Daniel, he's given a vision of the Father's heavenly throne room. This is 700 years before Christ. He sees this. Before me, one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In other words, this figure that Daniel sees described as a son of man is one who is given authority over a kingdom. So it's no coincidence then that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man throughout this passage and in verse 31. And then came in verse 34 without any kind of transition. His disciples, well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, would likely have picked that up. The one, like a son of man, is a king. 
and it is good to be at this king's right hand. This king will say to those gathered on his right, Your inheritance is the kingdom prepared since the creation of the world. Those at the king's right hand, they are coming into a renewed Eden, a place where there is no need for a sun or a moon, for the glory of God gives it light. This king is its lamb. So how is it that this group on the right receives such a gift? Why are they at the king's right hand and not with the others on the left? Well, the king now explains. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Pastor Alex, it sounds a heck of a lot like salvation by works. What are you preaching? If that was your reaction, it's similar to those on the right. Look how they respond in verse 37. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? They're surprised, a little confused, by the king's explanation for their glorious reward. It's clearly not what they expected to hear. Later, the people on the left, they'll respond in much the same way. Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? This reaction is at the very core of unlocking the meaning of Jesus' lesson in this discourse. It's really a massively underlooked part of this parable. Just to give credit where it's due on this section, I am following D.A. Carson quite closely for this element of surprise. But it's so important. Three ideas, they build on one another out of this reaction. Number one, each group is not surprised over the place the king assigns them. They're not shocked that they're on the right or that they're on the left. They're not surprised even by their stated reward or punishment, which is pretty drastic. They are surprised rather that they are being admitted or excluded on the basis of how they treated Jesus. This is not the evidence of the righteousness or wickedness they expected to hear. I think that's clear enough from the text, but it's important to have that foundation. Observation two, if the surprise is over the king's criteria, that rules out that either side on this final revealing day thought that a work of righteousness or a work of wickedness won or lost them salvation. They're in fact shocked to hear the king recite something that sounds like that, and it's at least partly, it seems, why they ask for clarification. The people on the right can imagine, maybe they thought they were going to hear something like, come into your inheritance, for you placed your faith in my finished cross work. The left, depart from me, because you did not believe. But that's not the case. So what is happening here? Observation three on the surprise of both groups. It appears the king is revealing a test that eliminates the possibility of hypocrisy. Neither side knew this would be the evidence presented on the last day. So each is being evaluated on terms they unconsciously performed. In other words, the people on the right and the left, they're not surprised at their placement. They're surprised at the reason for their placement. And this reason, though, folks, it shouldn't surprise us if we know our Bibles. The repeated testimony of Scripture is that while it is faith alone that saves, yet that faith itself is never alone. As James famously puts it, faith without works is dead. True Christians produce spiritual fruit in keeping with repentance. And it is this fruit, 
on which final judgment is rendered. Three texts. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Peter 1.17 If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Even Revelation 21 I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. None of this is contradictory with, say, Romans 10.9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It is complementary to such texts. The reason for admission to glory is often depicted as evidential rather than causative. Jesus predicts that he will judge his people based on the evidence that naturally flows from their being united to him by faith. And in this passage, Jesus is highlighting one fruit in particular, an essential spiritual fruit, if you will, one he knows all true believers will produce. So we need to identify this. Let's look closely at the text. What is it? Both the people on the left and the right, of course, demand an explanation. When did we help or not help you, Lord? What do you mean? How can we have missed you? They're looking at him in his surpassing glory on the judgment seat. Verse 40. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The ESV puts it this way. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. KJV, perhaps more of you are familiar with this. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Interpretation hinges on the meaning of the least of these my brothers. Many have taken that to simply mean the downtrodden, the distressed of all humanity, without any distinction. I think that's certainly the way we most often hear this quote. The problem with that view is it makes nonsense of the Greek word translated here as brothers, or as the NIV puts it in gender-neutral terms, brothers and sisters. Now, disclaimer, I am no Greek scholar. This does not get down to parsing and semantic range, though. This is simply a matter of Jesus never referring to all people without exception using this term, and in fact, in two places in this very book, along with many more outside it, he uses it in a very precise other way. Turn to Matthew 12, the other Bibles, verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. These are his biological mother and brothers. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus identifies his disciples as his true brothers. Matthew 10, 42, and this I think is the crucial passage to understand our text today. Again, Jesus speaking to his disciples. That's important. His disciples. Anyone who welcomes you, his disciples, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water 
to one of these little ones, alternatively one of the least of these, who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. I think we can answer with confidence. Who are Jesus' brethren? Who are his brothers and sisters? His disciples, his followers, Christians. Jesus uniquely identifies with his followers in this way. We must not also forget, as we're thinking about this, Paul's words in Colossians 1.18. He, Christ Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Why do you think Paul wrote that in Colossians? Might it have been from experience? Consider the resurrected Jesus in his special appearance to Saul on the Damascus Road. What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And what had Saul been doing? Killing, abusing, and terrorizing Christians. In doing so, Jesus says he was directly persecuting him. Members of New City, we are the body of Christ. We are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Together with all those of you visiting us from other local congregations today, together with some Afghans who will today be handed over to the Taliban to be martyred, together with a handful of Fortune 500 CEOs, together with thousands living with intellectual and physical disabilities, together with some who vote conservative and others who vote liberal and others who don't know the difference. We are Christ's body. Whatever is done to us is done to him. Carson again, the fate of the nations, it appears from this parable or this lesson, will be determined by how they respond to Jesus' followers, who missionaries or not, are all charged with spreading the gospel in the face of hunger, thirst, homelessness, nakedness, sickness, imprisonment. Are you starting to see how this might connect with the overall theme of this section of scripture? This is not a general appeal to almsgiving. This is Jesus shining a light on faithful living ahead of the coming judgment. While we wait for Jesus, we are to give special concern to his body, the church. Particularly, the least of those within it, ones facing intense distress. Hunger, thirst, homelessness, nakedness, sickness, imprisonment. Why does, why does Jesus use those categories? There could be others. There's others, right? Well, first it rules out the possibility of hypocrisy, this whole idea of the least of these. If Jesus had said, whatever you think, one of the greatest of these brothers and sisters of mine, I think some on the left may have protested, we did that. But there's also something deeper here than a surface-level interpretation of these hardships, the six that he lists. Look at some of these texts. Matthew 4.1 Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. John 19.28 Jesus said, I am thirsty. This is while he's on the cross. A jar of vinegar was lifted up with a sponge soaked in it put on a hyssop plant and lifted to his lips. The ardor of an itinerant ministry led Jesus to lament in Matthew 8.20, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Luke actually records for us that Jesus and his disciples, they were harshly supported by some women of means. In general, they were reliant upon the hospitality of many others for their most basic needs, having little of their own possessions. Matthew 27.28, they stripped him they stripped him naked and put a scarlet robe on him. Later, they divided their clothes amongst them. He was so weak with pain and likely illness that he was, as he was being led to Golgotha, he could not carry his cross. 
And finally, Jesus was arrested, spending a night in prison, subjected to all kinds of torture. So what is notable about the thirsty, the hungry, the homeless, the naked, the sick, the incarcerated Christian? Who do they look like? Do they not look like our crucified Savior? When we look into the face of our brothers and sisters in deepest distress, in lowliest estate, we should see our crucified King. We should be filled with a desire to love and to help. It should be really a natural reaction. Thus the central message of this final lesson. Given that it is the crucified King who is returning to pass this final judgment, love his blood-bought people, especially the lowly and distressed who look like him. Brothers and sisters, it is of eternal importance how we treat other Christians in this life. Jesus tells us here, in Matthew 25, that's how he will know his true people. It will serve as a foolproof litmus test of genuine faith. Where will this be practiced most often? In the local church. Hence my sermon title today, you see it now. On sheep and goats, heaven and hell, and being a faithful church member. In a sense, the latter phrase is what separates the two opposites. As Keith Green puts it, and thank you, Anne-Marie, for pointing me to this classic Christian hit from the 1980s, and his song about the sheep and the goats. The only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scripture, is what they did and didn't do. What separates the righteous and the wicked? The righteous live a life characterized by love for all of those aligned with Jesus. What is God's design for that kind of life? The local church. I think it can be easy to hear this message and only apply it to outside of our regular circles. I'm going to send more money to churches in third world countries. That's fine. That's part of this principle. It certainly extends beyond the member's role of your local church, the global body of Christ. But friends, we aren't omnipresent. Sometimes we try to do too much. More often than not, it is better to look around right where you are, where you can best understand the need. Sometimes our attempts to help the far off only leads more hurts. Many Christians on the ground will tell you of how many times help has come from overseas, and it really has hurt. Jesus is not saying, I have identified myself only with the most persecuted churches, only with the most persecuted church right at this moment. No. He is the head of all of his blood-bought people. Each part is precious, and according to any degree, should be shown special care. And how is that best done? Meaningful church membership. Knowing and being known by other Christians. What does our church covenant say in your city? I further engage to watch over you, my brothers and sisters, in brotherly love, to remember you in prayer, to aid you in sickness and distress. That comes right out of this text. Is there anyone in this church whom you'd be uncomfortable having over for dinner? Why? Are they a little awkward? Are you a little awkward? A little socially stunted, maybe? Have you resolved just kind of smile at them for the next five years on Sunday mornings and move on? Friends, that kind of subtle action unconsciously divides the body of Christ and should cause us to evaluate our hearts. Are we not rejecting Christ when we intentionally place at arm's length a part of his body that he has brought so near to us? Are they a stranger we're not inviting in? One more point of application. Do you want to know the easiest, yet sometimes most neglected habit that will lead us to love our brothers and sisters well? Being present. Presence breeds love. 
Absence is a great barrier to it. Warning, inconvenient truth. It will probably mean dying to some things we might otherwise want to do to make this a priority. We're so poor at this. We've become so poor at it in the last hundred years in the West. We feel unproductive when we spend time with each other just for the sake of it. And we need to relearn that. You say, how are we supposed to know the needs of our brothers, the sufferings of our sisters, if we don't make time for them? Here's an inside tip. Does your church have a prayer meeting? Go to it. Go to it faithfully. The intimacy of praying together gives so much insight into each other's lives. We have to resist viewing corporate meetings, be they worship or prayer or otherwise, like optional extras, or even worse, as consumer events for our own spiritual good. These are forums to edify and to be edified, to love and to be loved, to encourage and to be encouraged, to help the least of these, my brethren. Look around New City. See the people of God, the body of Christ, and think of how you can love it. Of course, this isn't limited to formal meetings of the church. Being present in each other's lives is all of life. It's through hospitality and discipleship and friendship. 1 John 3.16 This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Does that not sound like Matthew 25, now that we've looked at this? Maybe that's because the Apostle John was sitting at Jesus' feet for this discourse. Friends, the truth. That's really not how Jesus frames this. This passage, Matthew 25, and the first John one, for that matter, are set up more like tests than commands. Brother and sister, do you love the other members of your city, the other members of your local church who are visiting us? Do you love the general body of Christ if you're put in a situation where you're near them? That if the circumstance arose, and believe me, it's happening right now in Afghanistan and dozens of other countries around the world. Do you love them enough that you would die for them? Are you prepared to make yourself uncomfortable so that they are comfortable? If the answer is no, consider whether you have properly understood the gospel. Christian, the very eternal Son of God emptied himself. He emptied himself of heavenly glory, condescended into the world of sinful man, took on our very flesh, lived a life of perfect obedience, subject to all of our temptations, and submitted himself to the punishment he had not earned, death. The punishment you and I have earned a thousand times over. He was whipped, stripped naked, nailed to a piece of wood to bear the heavy weight of our sin, to absorb the fearsome wrath of God justly poured out against him. Why? Love. Willing self-sacrifice for our eternal good without prospect of reciprocation. That is the love of God. Is it in you? That is the test of these texts. True Christians are those characterized by sacrificial love for other Christians, in particular, lowly and distressed brothers and sisters, because Jesus identifies especially with them in his crucifixion. This behavior is a natural outflow of a life transformed by the gospel. This behavior defines 
faithful waiting in the last days. Finally, let's look at this concluding sentence. Verse 46. Then they, that is those in the king's land, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Judgment rendered at the end of the age is eternal. It's a simple point here, please. This conclusion ramps up the importance of the lessons that precede it. When Jesus comes like a thief in the night, after a long delay, his servants entrusted to improve his assets will be called to give an account. And the damning evidence of whether the Spirit of God is truly in each one will be laid bare by the king. Did they love the least members of his body? And just judgment will be administered in God. A new era will begin. It will have no end. Eternity with God. Second, after all, it is the same word that modifies both punishment and life here. If we argue that the one modifying punishment is something less, perhaps annihilation or something to that effect, do we not also question the concept of eternal life? Friends, hell is not a fun message to preach. It's deeply sobering, but Jesus preached it. He preached it often, four times in this discourse alone up to this point. Verse 40 of chapter 24, the wicked servant is cut to pieces, assigned a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 25.12, the unwise virgins are shut out of the wedding feast. They're told by Jesus, truly I tell you, I don't know you. The master says to the man who buried his one talent in 25.30, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And finally, those on the left, they hear, depart from you. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, if anyone ever tells you that Jesus never talked about hell, they haven't read the Bible, or they had joy of old faced life. What does Jesus teach about it in this parable alone? Hell is painful torment. It is away from God. It is away from the wedding supper of the Lamb. It is darkness. It is with the devil and his rebellious legion. And it is forever. The Apostle John describes it as a lake of fire in Revelation 20. A place where all those in it will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Hell is very real and very forever. It awaits everyone who is not united to Christ by faith, and therefore unable to persevere faithfully through these tumultuous last days. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, surely that can't be true. If there is a God, I refuse to believe he will act like this. That statement, friend, is rooted in nothing. The clear teaching of Scripture, the clear teaching of Jesus in this text and in the rest of the Bible is also backed up by the verifiable history of God's actions. Time and time again, those who scoff at God's coming in judgment come to regret it. Adam and Eve doubted the consequences of eating from the tree of life. They were exiled from God's presence and cursed. Noah's neighbors laughed at the ark and were swept away. Judah's kings mocked the faithful prophets for predicting Jerusalem's fall. That didn't go well. The Jewish leaders did the same thing in Jesus' day. I challenge you, I challenge you to read about the siege of Jerusalem 
in AD 70 and tell me that God is not a God capable of pouring out his wrath on rebellious image bearers. In the same way, do we now doubt that this same God will one day sweep away all of those who reject his very Son to a place of eternal punishment? Do we doubt that he will condemn those who spit on the work of the cross? Do we doubt that he will eternally punish those who shrug and an astoundingly costly and infinitely gracious solution offered to them? Treasonous rebels. Friend, the fact is, all of us are a breath away from standing before the judgment seat of Christ, from being sorted as sheep and goats. As the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards famously put it, it is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak they will not bear their weight, and these places are not seen. Friend, there isn't a third option. It's not the sheep, the goats, and the chickens. None stand in the middle before God. You're either on the right or on the left. If you are trusting in the cross work and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the payment for your sin, as the victory over your sin, and evidencing it, as we learn in this text, by your love for his people, then, if you're not doing that, you're currently on the left. You will hear, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. But friend, here's some great news. The merciful delay of Christ still extends. Christ can lift the curse that is upon you. The curse that first fell on Adam. Deny yourself. End your hopeless struggle for autonomy. Come to him. Join the sheep on the right, the body of Christ, and hear this instead. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Amen. Let's pray.